Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Worker power in the face of automation is a topic behind many headlines these days. For instance, one of the provisions in the new agreement between Hollywood writers and studios announced this week includes creative and labor guidelines around when it is and when it is not permissible to use artificial intelligence. Actors who are still on strike are also fighting for protections around AI in their contract negotiations. And for striking auto workers, automation is one cause of the job losses animating their concerns. In Harvard Business Review, Yossi Sheffi, an MIT professor and director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics, argues unions should be paying more attention to AI and automation issues. Quote, now is the time for labor unions to use their leverage, which may not last long as AI tools become better, to ensure the future of their members, he writes. Today's podcast guest has written a new history of perhaps one of the most famous movements for worker rights and power in the face of automation. The book sets the record straight on the Luddites and unpacks what today's workers can learn from them. I am Brian Merchant, the LA Times tech columnist and the author of Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. Brian, I'm pleased to have you back on this podcast and looking forward to seeing this book launch into the world. It comes from Little Brown and Company, a storied New York publisher. You are already out there talking a lot about this book because it's a book for the moment, right? This is a moment where we're thinking about our relationships with technology. We're thinking about the possible rise of our robot overlords. It's Friday, September 15th, when I'm talking to you. Just this week, there were three hearings in the United States Senate on artificial intelligence. There was one Senate innovation forum where the Senate majority leader invited a bunch of besuited tech executives to talk about what might happen with AI and maybe a handful of folks with other interests as well. This is the topic of the day, right? You are, I think, coming into this just at the moment where people are beginning to think about the consequences of progress, the consequences of taking this leap forward in artificial intelligence. So how does it feel to have such great timing? Well, it's a double-edged sword. I think a lot of these tensions, as I, I try to articulate in the book, certainly predate AI specifically, AI and the generative AI service providers and the AI companies like OpenAI and MidJourney are the the hot topic of the day, but they're basically doing something that has been done for nearly 200 years. And when I was, in fact, writing most of this book for the last five years or so, the companies I was looking most at were Uber and Lyft and the gig work companies who use algorithms to assert control and organize their workforces. That's just to say that There's a lot of ways that companies can use technologies and do use technologies to sort of assert those that level of control uh, over their workers and try to automate work and try to use that automation to undermine the wages and, and worker power and things like that. So what's happening with AI right now is a really good and powerful example of it. And you asked me whether or not I'm glad or how it feels to have this book arrive at this moment. I'm glad that folks want to talk about this stuff. I'm glad that there is a sort of an open mic to walk up to and discuss a lot of these issues and 
like technological development and who gets a say in how technologies affect their lives and their working lives in particular. But yeah, on the other hand, it's like it would have been great if the book was out six months ago so we could maybe be prepared for, for a lot of these things that are happening now. I don't know. Maybe it's optimistic to think, but there's a world in which it's not just the AI executives who are going to Congress, but a, a wider range of voices and, and interests as well. Explain the structure of this book, how you arrived at it. I decided to tell the story as a narrative where we get up close and personal with the main players, all of whom are very real and are some who are better known than others. So George Mellor, for instance, is one of the main focal points, and he's a, a cloth finisher in Huddersfield in, the, in Yorkshire in England in the early 1800s. And he is the main Luddite that we follow. He becomes a Luddite after he sees the way that entrepreneurs of the time are using machinery to, to push down wages, organize production in factories, and to change sort of the standard of living and the way of life in ways that's pretty obvious to a lot of his peers and townspeople. So he becomes a Luddite and we follow him. We follow Gravener Henson, who takes more of a, an approach that's reform-minded. It's history suggests that he probably was a Luddite too, and maybe even joined some of these nighttime raids that the Luddites were famous for, where they slip into the factories and break the machines that were automating their work. We also follow Lord Byron, who becomes one of the most vocal defenders of the Luddites. So I thought I would tell the story this way, because I think there's a lot of people that are interested in, in tech policy, and that's great. And I'm one of them. And I spend a lot of time reading white papers and following AI news. But I started actually writing the book that way as like a big ideas book where it's like, what did the Luddites mean? And here's chapter one, and, he, and this is what they mean to this. And here's chapter two, and here's a new technology. And I was almost boring myself. And I was trying to imagine who would really benefit from internalizing this story and who might really want to be, be reached if it, if it were approached in a different way. And I think it also helped that the Luddite story is just, in, it's crazy. It's really dramatic. It's surprised me how wild those years were. There's skullduggery and murder and spies and assassinations and the romantic poets. And so I was like, let me just tell this as a story. And I can weave my, my, my analysis into the story itself. And I just think it just felt more resonant that way, even to me. I think I just, you can read about George Meller and read his fears and his anxieties. And really, it just translates in a way to the workers of today in a way that maybe wouldn't has been, have been as resonant, at least to me, if I were just taking a more policy forward approach, not to denigrate any of that stuff, super important. And I love it. And it's, you know, my bread and butter in my day job, but just felt like it might resonate more widely if we told it as a story, as a narrative. Take us back to this moment, turn of the 19th century, water powered cotton mills. There's lots of, by the way, pictures of machinery in here that I appreciate. There's great line drawings of old mill machinery, et cetera. I grew up in a mill town in rural Virginia. And so a lot of that sort of imagery and some of the specifics of it recall for me some of the aesthetics of things that were around my childhood in some ways. Take us back, because this is a moment of rapid technological change. It, it may have felt even more rapid at the time than even what we're experiencing now. It certainly doesn't 
resemble technologically the kind of change uh, that we would expect to see now for the obvious reasons. But 200 years ago, at least in this region where most of the book takes place, which are in the Midlands of England and in the West Riding of England and booming cotton towns like Manchester, which had been a, a relatively small village before the Industrial Revolution and quickly became this huge metropolis. It was called Cottonopolis and factories sprung up and you can equate it maybe to something like Shenzhen, which was a fishing village just decades ago. And then this economic stars aligned and it just developed at such a breakneck pace that it, that it changed pretty rapidly. And in the book, George Meller, the Luddite who I just mentioned, is who we view a lot of this through. So when he's born in the late 1780s, a lot of these towns are very pastoral. You have weaving districts. There's weaving cottages. We get the term cottage industry from this industry because that's the way a lot of the work was organized. You'd have a cottage and you'd have a loom on the second floor. And if you were prosperous enough, maybe you'd have a couple looms and you'd have journeymen weavers come and work alongside you. Your family would work in their weaving cottage. Maybe you'd have a small garden. And that was the, the standard arrangement. There were also small shops that you would go into and out of, depending on what part of the cloth or weaving trade you were in. But it's important to note that those villages had been organized that way for about 200 years. And some of this technology had been around for that long, like the stocking frame, which was the sort of the linchpin of, of knitting in and around Nottingham and Nottinghamshire. So you have sort of these communities organized around a around a work that's done with machinery for quite a long time, generations and generations. And the biggest change, although technology plays a role, is probably in how sort of people begin to recognize how you can use machinery to organize labor and then move that into a manufactory or what would become a factory. So instead of those work from home arrangements that were so important to people, and I'll just say again, that was it was a nice life. You had autonomy. You could work with your family. People were singing. You could go take a break, walk in your garden for a lot of the same reasons that people like work from home now and they don't want to go back into the offices. When the Industrial Revolution started transferring work from the home and into those factories, there was a similar sort of apprehension. So George Miller is seeing that happen. He's seeing factories being built outside his town. It's not like Manchester's the exception to the rule. Most places you start to see work being organized in medium sized factories and then sometimes some very large ones. So the change isn't apparent immediately, but it's all of that work being concentrated by an entrepreneur into the same room with this automating machinery. Sometimes it's new, like the power loom was brand new for automating the weaving of cotton. Sometimes they've been around for a while and these societies had said no, like the gig mill and the shearing frame, which could automate George's work, which was smoothing a piece of wool cloth after you had it had already been woven. It was a really important part of the process. And so they had more power than a lot of the other workers. But those machines had been denounced and they had been rejected. And entrepreneurs were afraid to use them because they were basically they violated a social taboo and technically some regulatory taboos, too. At the end of the first decade of the 18th century, 
And about starting around 1809 or so, we start to see a bunch of different trends convene. And this is also what George Miller was seeing. So I think today it's good to think about where when we think about we're seeing breakneck technological change, it's really important to think about the context because the economic things that are going on play into that perception. Like right now we're seeing inequality has accelerated rampantly over the last 10 years, perhaps a byproduct of technological change. We're seeing sort of digital privatization of our spaces. So he was seeing enclosure happen where the actual physical spaces were being enclosed and given over to large landovers where you, where George used to, would be able to walk his sheep. So there's the sense that technology is advancing, but it's also buffeted very much by the sense that sort of the economics are changing. The, the social factors are, are, are being changed and against his will is the, is, is the important part. So I think all that feeds into this perception that the times are changing, that technology is beginning to accelerate. And it tends to happen when people who stand to profit quite a bit off of technology begin to use that to their advantage, whether or not, whether to sort of exploit or organize labor in a way that changes livelihoods or changes the fabric of a society. Otherwise, I don't think often it's actually the technology that changes so radically that sometimes it is and sometimes you can see it. But I think that people's anxieties play more of a role when those economic and social factors come into play. You point out in the book that the Luddites are not the first critics of invention and progress. There's actually a sort of longer intellectual history of different uh, folks from Plato onward thinking about whether in all cases the future means technological progress. Yeah. So there was a really interesting thread that I tugged on and I talked to some great sort of scholars of AI through antiquity and beyond like Kanta D. Hall and Adrian Mayor. And the gist was that people have been thinking about automation and the power of automation for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's examples of automation in in Homer, Homer describes like the blacksmith gods in using automated tools to serve their guests, or there were gods that would protect villages that were drone warriors. And by and large, most of this stuff was up- applauded or was looked forward to. People were excited about automation until the economic dimensions really start to come into play until the Industrial Revolution. When people begin to be worried for the first time that this could be a threat to their livelihoods or their agencies. And there are critics of, of technology. There's the Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman sort of debate. The famous is, well, if you people write down, then they can't, they're not going to remember a thing. And that's more of like a study of like the technological development and our attitudes towards that sort of, I think there are different fears that are bound up in, in automation. And when we start thinking about whether a machine can replace our job or our identity. And I do think again, that like, first and foremost, it's probably motivated by economic factors. If you feel that threat the most acutely, it's always interesting to look at who and who it is and who isn't threatened or anxious about AI today. It's like, there's 50,000 authors that have signed this petition asking that if AI is used to, is trained on their work, that they be compensated for it, that they get permission first. And then you have a few authors who have quite a comfortable economic buffer, like Stephen King saying like, well, I don't you know, who knows? It's an interesting philosophical question. So it's always interesting to see who, who is for and who's um, a little more skeptical. 
Of course, the major project of this book is you're asking us to rethink the Luddite movement, rethink how its story is told and how we're to understand it in the context of this lineage of being critical about invention and progress. You say that the story of the Luddites that has become the kind of common parlance, the idea that there's just sort of people who are opposed to the future, boneheaded folks who are against all the great things that technology can bring us, that didn't just happen. That, in fact, was manufactured. How was that story manufactured? Where does that start? And how is it perpetuated? Yeah, there's a great quote from Theodore Rozak, who's a cultural critic and, and scholar and who writing in the 90s, he said, if the Luddites didn't exist, then basically their opponents would have to invent them. Because in order to justify a lot of things that technology companies, you could apply even to 200 years ago, were doing, I think you ha- it's, it greatly benefits yourself to cast yourself as the engine of progress. And then therefore, so anybody who's against that, you can cast them right in opposition or as backwards or confused or derided. And that's precisely what the the crown and the chief industrial interests of the day did with, with the Luddites. So when the Luddites rise up first, they're immensely popular. People are cheering them in the streets as they go on these raids after they go at night at first and they're super well organized. But once it's understood what a sort of resonance they're more brazen and they're they are breaking the machines in the middle of the day and sometimes hauling machinery out into the street in the factory and crowds are gathering around and cheering them they're like robin hood basically of the day and that's not without accident they're from the same region and the name even ned ludd is probably apocryphal and ned ludd robin hood ned ludd it may have been a direct descendant from that but they have won the hearts and minds very quickly of a lot of people who are concerned about the ways that mechanization is going to be used, the way that technology is going to be used to impact their trades, the way that factory work is going to impact their trades. Even when there wasn't a machine that could, say, like make a shoe anywhere near on the horizon, the shoemakers understood what the organization of that work into a factory system where they would have to sit there for a predetermined amount of time every day in a windowless room being told to do this or that, having their dignity stripped from them. They hated, above all, to stand at their command. That was a phrase that was common at the time. We don't, they don't want to stand at their command. So it was as, as much resisting that as anything else. And so it was super popular. So the Luddites would be joined by other tradesmen, by other folks in their raids and in their movement. And the government probably recognizes this pretty early on. I do also think that they were pretty blindsided and they were so far detached to something else I talk about in the book. They're so far detached from their subjects. Their democracy wasn't really a thing at the time, so they didn't have to have local input or they didn't have to respond to voters' demands or anything. So they really didn't know what was going on in a lot of cases. But they basically undertake this, what we could call today a propaganda campaign to paint the Luddites as sort of these barbaric depredators who knew not what they do. They're probably under the malign influence of some leader who's managed to delude everybody else into following them because otherwise that they'd see they're smashing the very machines that make England great. Like, how could, why else would they be doing? So they start this campaign and the prince Prince Regent, who is effectively the king, issues these proclamations saying as much. And 
when it comes time for the Luddite trials, the prosecutors are even using this language right up there to convict the Luddites of their crimes of breaking machinery for which dozens of men would hang. It was really a very concerted effort that the, the state both had to undertake that propaganda campaign and it also had to organize a military occupation in the districts where this was happening. Thousands of troops were sent to literally occupy in the manufacturing districts where the Luddites were organizing to try to deter the raids and they would ally directly with the with the entrepreneurs and the factory owners and they would send troops over and they would guard the factories and this whole time it's clear that a different decision could have been made this in all of these conversations you look at the parliamentary records and they're never even considering the fact that there's a depression going on they themselves parliament have imposed a trade sanctions so they so some of their huge markets that they rely on to ship goods to are closed off so there's this huge economic depression there were bad harvests people are literally starving and instead of thinking about how we can alleviate this the luddites had sent the proto luddites before they were luddites they had sent people to parliament saying hey let's can we how about a minimum wage how about you start regulating the factory owners who are using this machinery in ways that are literally against the law Think about Uber or Lyft and how they rolled into cities and how they just ignored the laws until they got too big to fail. That's what the factory owners did back then. Not a new playbook. They said, hey, how about some assistance? How about you send some welfare benefits, basically? Instead of doing that, the crown mobilized the army and set them up outside the factory and helped them push back the Luddites and eventually gun them down in the streets. That combined with sort of the propaganda campaign, it was still a time when the crown was subsidizing a lot of newspapers so that you have a lot of leeway. So propaganda campaign, show of force, demonstrating that to oppose industrialization was to risk getting crushed. And you have this like really strong message injected in, in, into the history books by the victors that Luddite is to be a bad word. And it has been ever since. And if I Google Luddite now, the first definition I'm given is a person opposed to new technology or ways of working. Quote, a small-minded Luddite resisting progress. Uh, so I suppose that even to this day, small-minded, uh, <laughs> right? Small-minded. Yeah. Google, and I do act, I point that exact anecdote out in the book because look, it's so ironic. Google is telling you that somebody who opposes technology is small-minded. The irony persists. You write that true Luddism was about locating exactly where elites were using technologies to the disadvantage of the human being and organizing to fight back. This is an important point. Luddism can and certainly did coexist with technology and even a love of technology. Most folks who may not be aware of this history might be surprised to learn that. But there's so many different ways to describe the kind of lineage of the Luddites that are also perhaps surprising on through ideas that came out of the literature of some of those poets and writers that you described as being part of the book. Frankenstein, for instance, perhaps the beginning of a sort of lineage of fictional stories that critique the idea of progress and automation on some level. Also, you point out that the Luddites leave a kind of legacy a set of tactics to future rebels that are still being used today. Can you talk a little bit about 
those tactics? What are the tactics that we're left with? So the Luddites were initially so successful, and we remember them because they got correct, but it should be pointed out that in the short term, the Luddites were actually very successful even in achieving some of their immediate goals by undertaking this tactic where they basically destroyed the capital equipment of, of a factory owner, specifically and only the capital equipment of a factory owner that was doing this automation that was, that was degrading their jobs and their ability to earn a living. They were able to get wages restored. Other, some factory owners were immediately like, I don't want any part of this. We'll restore the wages to what they were before we started porting in this new machine, this new machinery or organizing our businesses in this factory style manner. So they got some wages back. They got some assurances. They built a little bit of power. And again, like I just mentioned in the previous answer, it was, it took the, the state an, um, an immense sort of effort to crush all that. But. One of the reasons that the Luddites were so successful was that they, number one, they operated with this incredible tight-knit cell structure. They were made up of people who had been in the same community for most of their working lives. They shared the same grievances. They understood each other very well, and it was very difficult to wedge in between them. It was very difficult to divide them. The state had previously tried to like break up reform movements and pro-democracy Tom Paine groups by sending in spies and agitating. And that was usually a much looser connection of people. These are really tight-knit groups that were able to respect the sort of the secrecy and sanctity of this Luddite idea. Number two, they organized under a banner that was, you could say, meme-based, right? Ned Ludd was an avatar who probably didn't exist. And you could write your letters outlining specific grievances to the factory owner. And this is what they would do. This is their tactic. They would use sort of the cutting-edge media of the day, which was letter writing, and pinning a letter on the factory door that said, we know that you have 100 of the new wide frames in there that are putting 600 people out of work by their use. They would calculate the amount of economic damage that this had done, who was suffering. They said, you've put, in, you put 600 of our brothers out of work. They can no longer afford bread. Take down these machines or you'll get a visit from Ned Ludd. Well, they would give them the week. And if they did not take down the machines, then sure enough, Ned Ludd, King Ludd, General Ludd, he went by all these names, would show up and, and, and they would slip in and destroy the machinery holding the factory overseer at gunpoint. Now, having that sort of this approach let you apply it to whatever the particular sort of grievances were in your district. So you have Ned Ludd, you have General Ludd. It's well known now that he is this animating force behind opposing industrialization or imposing industrialists, industrializing in this way, rather. And you could use that to, to your needs, whatever the grievance was. If you wanted to target a factory owner who was using machinery to automate jobs, good. If you wanted to use it to agitate in other ways, you could do that too. There were food riots where under the banner of General Ludd, there were mass protests where General Ludd was a prominent figure. And then there were the sort of the classic nighttime raids against the factories. Um, and you, and they did not need any sort of central coordination in order to do this. In fact, it's still disputed to this day how much exactly intercell communication there was. And that's both a strength and a, and, and a weakness. For future rebels, it's good to know that you can create some mythology around your struggle and allow the, that malleability for people to sort of buy in in ways that they can apply the general aims to their own grievances, their own experiences. 
And that was really powerful because the factory owners didn't know. They're like, is there a General Ludd? Is he going to mobilize troops against me? I don't know. I better lock the doors. Nobody knew exactly how real or how uniform or how powerful it was. And that made it more powerful than it could have ever been just on it uh, alone. So this brings us to the idea of sabotage. This is at a point where we've crossed this threshold, this important threshold, where people feel there is no longer any legal or perhaps even nonviolent uh, way to address their concerns. How do we know when that threshold's been crossed? And I don't know, what's the possibility that might happen again? I don't want to push you too far uh, forward in the book, but of course, you describe the current economy, the gig economy especially, the idea of what you call fear factories, the management of masses of people by algorithm, people who are dispatched to do their work by app, often hired and fired by app. What happens when these individuals feel as if there is no legal recourse to their concerns? Yeah, it's not particularly or even explicitly like a labor related example, but I do think it's interesting that as we're speaking, I think the most recent direct example of like what you would consider Luddism could you could be you probably saw maybe the image of the woman I don't it's not clear attacking a self-driving car and hammering it to bits San Francisco yeah so we don't know this could just be an act of wanton vandalism or wanton violence but there has been in in recent months this campaign to cone cars which is a much, much, much funnier and I think somewhat effective protest against sort of the expansion of self-driving cars in San Francisco. Because you talk to a lot of folks and they get the sense that this wasn't necessarily a decision that was made in with the democratic interests of San Francisco in mind. After all, you have the service providers coming out and saying, no, these autonomous cars are a nuisance. Please, let's wait. Fire departments, police departments saying these are making our lives harder. And then you have people sort of kind of anxious about them. So the fact that they're taking their initiative into their own hands, even though the Public Utility Commission of California voted to allow them to expand, if there's a genuine sense or if it is true that it's not, it doesn't reflect the democratic values of of a community, then you can see why somebody would take it into their own hands to try to stop those in their tracks, whether by coning or outright destroying the equipment that's infringing against their will into sort of their communities. And that, I think, is one of the major lessons that I take away from this from this study. And that's that when you have a system that sort of encourages people who are already well-positioned or already well-heeled or, or well-resourced to be the ones that get to decide how technology is developed and then unleashed upon a a, a society or imposed upon a society when countless people depend on a certain norm or a standard, then that kind of disruption can not only be painful, but really quite harmful, could really dangerous. We really need to be thinking about the ways that we're democratically, truly democratically developing technologies and being able to offer inputs into the ways that they are used in our workplaces and communities, not the Silicon Valley buzzword democratization that lets people use their apps under the terms and conditions, but actually in that development, in that deployment process, because that top-down mode 
being shoehorned and rammed into communities time and again, into working communities, into into societies at large has been the cause of a lot of these problems. And, and it remains so today. I want to just ask you about some of the figures in the sort of more recent movements to try to rebalance the power between especially major technology firms or major commerce platforms like Amazon and others. Uh, who out there do you think is leading the way? You point to folks like Chris Smalls. Um, I actually had a chance to be at Metro Tech Center in Brooklyn when Chris Smalls came down from the NLRB meeting and was able to declare a victory in the formation of a union at the Staten Island Amazon facility where he was organizing. And if you've ever been to that facility, it's just an absolutely extraordinary, massive kind of thing that I think most New Yorkers are simply unaware of. But are there other folks out there that you look to and you think these are the folks who are now in this fight and that perhaps may lead us into the future? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of them. Um, Chris Smalls was a big uh, player, and while I was researching the book, uh, when I had fi- when I finished the book, he, that had just happened. He had just successfully participated in the organization of the first Amazon facility um, in Staten Island, and that was a really big deal for a lot of reasons that are probably clear. But yeah, it's and to the last question, where about with we're coming up to the brink. I think a lot of the leadership that's really most crucial and is needed is in the gig work sector, because that really resembles sort of what the Luddites in so far as they were power uh, in, in a lot of ways where we've seen all these efforts to ensure that gig workers are independent contractors, not employees. So they don't have the right to unionize or to organize and to fight back in this big way. So I think that there are actually self-described Luddites who are part of that fight. They, I'm thinking of like Vina Dubal, who's a labor scholar who's done a lot of pioneering work looking at the exploitative properties of gig work and the reliance on algorithms to direct that work. And she's helped fight the legal battles on behalf of that movement and try, but so far unsuccessfully, to push back against things like Prop 22 in California that really dealt a blow. And again, that's another apparently that looks a lot like the the Luddites could not, they were not legally allowed to organize. That's an important thing too. It was against the law to organize. So in places like LA and where we're seeing the SAG-AFTRA and the WGA strikes going on, we're seeing a really organized sort of resistance to, in in, in this case, uh, you know, the studio executives and one of their main demands, of course, is that they don't use AI to replace their labor. It's a very Luddite demand. They have the the benefit of being so tightly organized and they can really hold the line and some of the leaders of the WGA and the and SAG are really talking about AI in a way that is that feels really refreshing. You think of like even the Fran Drescher speech or Adam Conover, who I've spoken to a few times about the strike, is re- really has a very good sense of what technology can and can't do, and knows exactly how the studios want to use it. And it's not to just replace them; it's to degrade their work. Same thing as in the Luddites time. A lot of times these machines couldn't make the same quality cloth, but they could make more of it and then they could justify paying people less. So there, there are, I'd say SAG, WGA, very Luddite demands. Molly Crabapple, who has become a figurehead 
in fighting for artists and illustrators rights as a lot of their work is like quietly gobbled up by generative ai she has filed this big open letter and has in an effort to get newsrooms and editorial outlets to to ban the use of generative ai artwork in in their operations it's harder again they're less organized they're like the gig workers where they're atomized and they're now building some solidarity in ways that might be helpful in opposing some of the more onerous applications of AI, but they've got a ways to go yet. I'll finish up here just by pointing out that you allow in the afterward, of course, the tension between workers and employers, workers and the makers of technology don't always lead to violent insurrection. But you do ask the question, so how do uprising against big tech and machine owners begin? And you pose a handful of propositions based on your read of history. And I'll just repeat a couple of them here. When entrepreneurs and executives deploy new technologies intended to replace skilled work, confound or elude regulations or degrade traditional jobs en masse, especially in difficult economic circumstances, it's worse if those workers have no recourse. When the social norms and customs foundational to working people are systematically undermined by those wielding technologies new or old, when the perception that the entrepreneurial elite have become overcome by greed and self-interest becomes conventional wisdom, when workers see that tech titans are openly willing to profit even while others suffer, when managers use technology to embark on the widespread destruction of status and the pathways to upward mobility, and finally, when technological development is top-down and anti-democratic and workers get no say in how automation or algorithms impact their daily lives. I'm afraid we may have checked the box on many of those at the moment, Brian. (laughs) So we'll see how things work out in these next few years. A lot of that depends on the other factors. So if all of those things are true at the same time that we see more severe economic depression. Like, remember right now, like the labor market is actually pretty, pretty good. Wages aren't high enough. That's why we're seeing strikes. Housing costs are too high. So we're seeing a lot of complaints there and there's still far too much poverty and insecurity, but it's not a moment that feels like a crisis, maybe like it did the the last true economic crash in the late 2000s. If another economic downturn heads our way, if there's another crash and all of these things are true and it feels like folks really don't have any other good recourse, then yeah, we could be headed for for troublesome times. And that's why I do think that it's good and smart that so many people are already seeing the dangers posed by mass automation and AI to the fabric of the economy and their working communities. And in cases like SAG and WGA are pushing back and are kind of showing us how to do that. This book's called Blood in the Machine by Brian Merchant. By the time you're hearing this podcast, it'll be out from Little Brown and Company. Brian, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Fun as always. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to Brian Merchant, thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.